for the Agile community. www.agile.fm Thank you for tuning into another podcast episode here with Agile FM. I have uh, James Granning with me. Um, he is uh, famous, famous for being part of the Agile Manifesto, uh, signing the Agile Manifesto back in 2001. Um, and uh, he wrote a book, Test Driven Development for Embedded C. A lot of people know him from that embedded work. We will talk about that. We might start off with the Agile Manifesto. We'll talk about planning poker and we will be talking about training. There's a lot of stuff we have to cover in, these, uh, in this podcast episode. But first and foremost, welcome to the podcast, James. Joe, thanks so much. I really appreciate you inviting me. It's really nice to be here. And I was looking through your list of other people that you've had on the podcast, listened to a couple and uh, great. Really nice to be among the company that you keep. Oh, thank you so much. And uh, obviously, this is uh, way overdue that you are joining me here on this uh, podcast. Uh, we had folks uh, from uh, Agile Manifesto, other other folks that have signed the manifesto. We had uh, folks that have uh, little to no exposure to agility, but we could always connect the topic to agility. But this one, uh, I have to say, when we're talking about embedded so software and software development and agile practices for that, I myself will be a little bit out of my comfort zone. So are many of uh, our listeners, uh, possibly. And uh, that is probably because it feels like a niche, but it is not a niche in the, in the software world out there. And I think it's growing. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, well, there's certainly millions. Uh, I don't even know what the right number would be, millions of embedded software developers. And uh, I'll tell you one of the big secrets is that uh, embedded software may be special, but that doesn't make it special enough that agile, test-driven development, and the modern practices wouldn't work for it. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, dependency on hardware is like a dependency on a database. Mm -hmm. If you're going to uh, accelerate your your uh, development, you've got to manage those dependencies. And so at the core, it's the same problems, but they just look very different. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wonder, because your background was already before 2001 was in that territory, right? In um, technology that was related to uh, embedded software, telecommunication, things like that, right? Yeah. As far as I know. Um, and you came to the Agile, uh, to the snow, Snowbird, and actually the funny thing was just yesterday, before we do this recording here, I saw a person with a baseball cap that said Snowbird on it, and this person had nothing to do with Agile, but I said, this is famous, and uh, I will be speaking with James Granning tomorrow, um, and uh, he obviously acquired that in Snowbird, but when you went to the Snowbird, you were you know, maybe the only one that uh, somehow related all these discussions to embedded software development. Actually, actually, there were at least a couple of us, a few mm -hmm. of us, let me say, because uh, Bob Martin and I grew up on, at a company called Teradyne. Mm -hmm. He was there a little bit before me, and he recruited me to Teradyne back in the early 80s. And uh, we were both working on embedded systems at, uh, and larger systems at Teradyne, but that's where we started and all that. Uh, later, when I joined Bob and his consulting company uh, in the mid-90s, um, we did a lot of work in large embedded systems, like these big printers at Xerox and such. So mm -hmm. Bob had a lot of embedded background. Uh, John Kern worked on fighter planes and avionics and things like that, if I remember correctly. And uh, Steve Meller is also known. Uh, we, I got to know Steve Meller better because we would cross 
has at embedded systems conferences quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And uh, Steve Miller was really into model driven, but he also, his depth also was in embedded systems. So there were a few people there with that perspective. Did you guys look through the lens of embedded software development during those discussions or were they like more like um, discussions around agility and how to build software in general? I'm just curious. Yeah, embedded, re embedded really didn't come up um, there. Um, I was learning from all the people there. And I also tell people the truth that I went there because it's like, you're going to Snowbird. <laughs> yeah, I want to go. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, Bob had invited me. I worked with Bob at the time and uh, I love to ski. So I was there. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> And the, um, the meeting was really interesting uh, because, I, you know, the guys that I'm with were, you know, kind of my extreme programming heroes, uh, Kent and Ward and Ron and mm -hmm. Martin Fowler, um, and that I was getting to know these other people, right? And so, uh, and Bob Martin, of course, a long, long time uh, friend and colleagues there. Yeah. So, so that obviously had a huge impact on, on your career and you continued writing that book, uh, maybe roughly 10 years later about test-driven development for embedded Z. Uh, going forward a little bit in time to today, yeah. um, when, when people or listeners right now to this, uh, to this podcast, when they're hearing embedded uh, software development, what do they have to picture? What is, what is a good definition for that? So that they have a feeling of uh, what kind of problems uh, arise there and, and then we talk a little bit about okay. it. Sure. Well, embedded systems are everywhere now. I mean, we rely on them. Um, they're extremely powerful too. They can be very small. Like it might be cheaper to have a, um, a microprocessor in your pen to turn on a light than to actually have a physical switch, Yeah, which is kind of crazy. You know, so you could have an electronic <laughs> rather than a, 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 you know, a different kind of switch. So embedded software is everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, I generally have, well, I have my definition, which is you don't recognize the thing as a computer. And that's a very broad definition because I would like to have a lot of people be able to learn something about agile for embedded and about test-driven development for embedded. You know, things that were mind-blowing to me when I bumped into them with extreme programming in 1999, it's like, oh my gosh, why didn't we think of this before? This solves so many of the problems that I have to live with. And, uh, so, well, we hadn't, and it took some real geniuses like Kent and Ward to come up with this way of working for the engineer. I'm an engineer, so I kind of think of this from an engineering perspective. But, uh, um, you know, so the, the difference is, you know, you don't really think of it as a computer. It's not a website, They're, although now embedded systems have <laughs> web mm -hmm. servers in them often. Many of many do, like your printer is an embedded system, but you can connect to it through your local network and open up a web browser page and configure it, right? And so, you know, the lines are blurring. Uh, your car is uh, unbelievably complex. Mm -hmm. Hundreds of millions of lines of embedded code talking through uh, mm -hmm. various ways to make sure when you put on your, touch your brakes that they come on. <laughs> yeah. It's, what about self-driving self -driving car capabilities? Yeah, well, that's scary. I mean, knowing yeah. how <clears throat> generally bad software is, excuse me, um, and some of mine as well, <laughs> knowing how bad software is, and it's going to be driving the car. <clears throat> the best uh, thing I heard about, best reason to trust a computer over a human is that, well, humans are even worse than, than computers are driving cars. It's like, oh, no, there's probably a pretty good argument because <laughs> 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 humans are, can be pretty bad. Yeah. But, uh, you know, so that, that time is coming. You know, it makes me a little bit nervous. My car has a few things which I do like, but, of course, I don't overtrust. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm letting it break for me in slow traffic, but my foot is ready. Mm-hmm. I'm paying attention. I don't really completely trust it. Yeah. But it's done, it's done well so far. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's maybe it's a combination of two things, not fully self-driving right now, right? But we yeah. are in a situation where it's like, it can help. It can help uh, pr- protect you more as a driver. Oh, yeah. so it's not like you're not alone. <clears throat> you have cameras now and they help you make decisions. Uh, yeah, no doubt. Getting out of my driveway now, if if I go back to, you know, I'm in Florida right now, but I often might be in Illinois. My 2004 Honda in Illinois doesn't have any of the modern stuff. So as mm-hmm. I feel very vulnerable backing out of the garage now, my modern cars down here in Florida, I can't make a move without them getting mad at me. It's like, you know, <laughs> did you know you're about to back into something? You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. So, I've got a wife to help with that, but then also the car helps. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> All the help we can get, right? That's right. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> So I, I used to be a um, um, long, long time ago, I programmed in Smalltalk and uh, there's garbage collection in, in Smalltalk. Yeah. Um, so if we're going a little bit to uh, technologies, like what kind of technologies are being used? I would assume Smalltalk is not suitable for no. that because of garbage collection, right? Yeah, well, uh, origi- in, interestingly enough, Ted Beck and Ward Cunningham were building oscilloscopes in Smalltalk in mm-hmm. the 90s. Right. And so they actually were working in embedded systems, even though, you know, they didn't look like it because they're developing in small talk. Um, still in embedded systems, C is the king of all languages, as mm-hmm. it is for developing Linux and other things that kind of get close to the hardware. Mm-hmm. Uh, C++ is also popular. I'd say that they're similarly popular. Um, Python is making a move. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked in a IOT radio system a few years ago. I was building a prototype for my brother's company. Mm-hmm. And there was a, I guess they called it an ecosystem where you have a small Linux box, you know, this like a super Raspberry Pi mm-hmm. with this uh, radio that makes a mesh network. And then these little radios, which are microcontrollers. And the, the language that you programmed the little Linux box with was um, Python. Mm-hmm. And you had a micro Python in the radios. And we chose this vendor just because, well, we can build a prototype really quickly if we don't have to worry about all the multitude of things you have to worry about when you're working in embedded C. Mm-hmm. There were some new problems, though, because a millisecond isn't very fast when you're talking about the real world, um, you know, when you're talking about peripherals and things. And the best we could get from a timing perspective where we could actually cause something to happen frequently was about a millisecond. That wasn't... Um, if I wanted to get away from that, we would have had to program in bare C. Mm-hmm. And so we figured out a different way. We actually made up for the limitations of Python because we needed to look at something at the uh, um, microsecond level, like 100 mm-hmm. microsecond, tenth of a millisecond. We had to look at that uh, cadence and the Python couldn't look at that, but we could write some, we could create some hardware that would extend the signal that we were interested in watching. Mm-hmm. Um, to a long enough duration that we could see it in Python, which seems kind of crazy. We made up for the lack in software with hardware. Usually yeah. you're making up for the lack in hardware with software. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, we're in the beginning. It's like, okay, what could we do? It's like, oh, we could build yeah. a little delay circuit in here and you know, stretch that signal out. And then we could see it from the Python code. It's like, great, let's do that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all breadboard anyway. You know, we, don't, we're, yeah. we weren't building millions of these yet. So what I'm <laughs> curious about is, uh, James, is... Like in product development, right? So in embedded software development, there is a there's another product. There's like a let's say a robot, or there's an arm, or something that, that moves. So that yeah. the, the the software controls like let's say a hardware. 
Uh, and that's like for me, like just help me understand like this chicken egg kind of th- situations. Like, is the hardware first? Is this software first? Or, hmm. um, <laughs> or is uh, is it a parallel effort? Which I think it sounds like it. But how do you develop software for something that might not even exist yet in in terms of hardware? Are yeah. these interfaces, specifications? Yep. Yeah. So there's a there's a few different things you can do, and hmm. uh, I've got a couple of resources that might be interesting. One is I wrote a paper long ago talking about. Uh, uh, progress before hardware. So if you knew what you're trying to build, but you didn't know what the hardware looked like, you could build the core of the application out towards the hardware, pushing the interfaces out and out more until you reach this end where, you know, there's a radio there now and I need the radio, or there's um, some IO pin signals that we can control, mm-hmm. right? Eventually, you, you know, you push, your, so you could start in the middle and work your way out. Um, another thing you can do is you can start in the out and work your way in. And I'm sure you can mix these together as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the uh, an early extreme programming project where we didn't know what the hardware was, we started working on the business rules of a police radio system uh, right from the beginning, based on the requirements documents in the you know conversations with the customers and what we know the previous system did. So we were mm-hmm. able to start in the middle and work our way out while the hardware engineers had time to figure out what the hardware looked like. Um, this IoT system that I worked on more recently, um, we and I've got a, it's I've got a, a video which people can watch a conference presentation which is uh, tracer bullets and something in a greenfield mm-hmm. in a greenfield project. Those are some of the keywords um, <clears throat> where we recognize that there was a number of risks to the project that we we're going to do. Like, what radio system should we use? Okay, that has the performance we need, you know, 10 pressure readings per second with 10 sensors. That's what we needed. So we knew we needed to be able to handle that traffic. Um, And then what was going to happen next? Well, that radio would have to talk to an analog to digital converter, a thing that takes real world signals in an analog and converts them to digital. Right. You know, so uh, a pressure sensor reading might come in as a a digital number, which could be converted through um, some characterization of the hardware into a PSI. Now now we got to get that all the way up through layers and layers to a tablet for the technician who's, who wants to know what the pressure is and they can read the, uh, the reading on their phone or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So we looked at an architecture that might work with that. And we identified about five layers of risk. And so what we thought here, our biggest risk is, can we find an effective technical solution? So we built a walking skeleton. Right. which involved, can I just get messages between these two uh, computers mm-hmm. at 10 radios at 10 readings per second? Will it keep up with that? Mm-hmm. And I, I got the vendor to write me a script that did that. It's like, oh, great. Okay, so I could run it. I could run around with the radios, take them down the block, you know, go mm-hmm. put one on the other side of the garage door, bring them into an industrial setting and put them on the other sides of machines and things. We could experiment to see if they worked. Mm-hmm. And we found out they did work. They worked fine. It's like, okay, we can build with that. So that was one risk removed. Uh, the tracer bullet idea comes from pragmatic programmers. So we just shot a, an idea at that. It's like, okay, we can do that. Now, what are the some of the other risks? Well, we've worked with this analog to digital converter before, and it has a special way of interacting with it. I wonder if this radio can talk to it, or do we need to change that hardware too? And so we figured out how to get that radio to talk to the other thing. And then we worked our way up. How do we get to the tablet? 
know, through the little Linux box, you know, web server there to a tablet mm -hmm. and eliminating risks. And we were able to get a pressure reading from the lowest, from an actual sensor to the screen, right? Yeah. And so we were able to prove that it's possible to do what we want to do in a cost-effective way with software. We understand each of the pieces throughout the, throughout the slice. Right. And then it was decide whether or not we're going to build the product. Yeah. It's just fascinating while I was listening to you. It's like, it's like, I think this is just an example of how complex the world is and what people should be aware of when they're writing a text message to somebody mm -hmm. who sits next to <laughs> somebody else. It's like, what is happening, you know, oh. with text messages in nanoseconds, right? Um, yeah. This is just- It's amazing any of it works. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing that it works, but it's also interesting to see like how, what kind of technology is involved yeah. when you are literally sitting next to each other and just dropping some uh, That's right. Message. Yeah, my little example was all before yeah. we even connected to a cloud because the next thing that was going to happen, which we hadn't explored yet, was how do we get the, the data that is needed now to prove to an insurance company that, that has the right water pressures here for these fire yeah. pumps? How do we get that into the report? Right? Yeah. And that's really what they, all they want is a report. All this other stuff is a mean to an end. Mm. Right? So... Um, it's fascinating, right? We are, you know, uh, where potentially while you're talking, I, I'm just thinking about where embedded sy systems are. Like you, it could be, I mean, this is just the, the sky's the limit, right? And probably yeah. it's, 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 it's where well. aren't they? Yeah. They're in your doorbell. Yeah. <laughs> They're in your key fob. <laughs> yeah. It's everywhere. Yeah. Right, let's, talk a, let's talk a little bit. As the complexity is there, the, the hardware, um, software kind of connect. Um, and how they are being developed. Obviously, there is product development life cycles, et cetera. But there's also, and that's obviously, I want to connect the dots with you here, is what makes all that so special about agile development practices when you are working, let's say, in an embedded world? What, what's, what's happening to unit testing? Why is, how is testing being done for somebody who is not familiar with this and the complexities of that? Okay, great question. So uh, what really was an aha moment for me um, in late 1999 uh, when I went to the extreme programming immersion that was being hosted by Bob Martin's company, Object Mentor. And uh, I had really didn't know that much about XP or test-driven. It was called test-first programming at that time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was kind of blown away when Kent Beck started demonstrating test-first programming. Mm -hmm. And he was writing the core code that he needed in a test environment. And the light bulb in my head was, oh my gosh, for 20 years, I had 20 years of experience at this point in my career. Um, we've been waiting for hardware. We'd write code without the hardware mm -hmm. and we'd wait till the hardware came. And then we'd start running our code with the hardware that we have. And the hardware has problems and the software has problems, of course, because humans wrote it. Yeah. Nothing works lots of pressure and we're under the most pressure to try to get something to work late in the development cycle where there's so much unknown and you know so many problems because we have this code that we couldn't really run and Ken is running Kent is running his code in a test environment I thought I'm trying that next week I was with a client and we we're mm -hmm. uh, working in C++ in an embedded radio again and uh, so we just started the next Monday I said I learned some crazy stuff last week while I wasn't with you um, will you guys try it and uh, at first they were, the engineers were afraid because it's like, no, we, our process says we do it like this. You know, we write the document, then we write, then we do a design, then we write some code. We have to get all this stuff reviewed, blah, 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 blah. And I said, well, let me, let's go talk to the director, you know, because I was the outside influence here. They hired me to come and 
help them with some stuff. It's like, you might want to know about this. And he said, hmm, that just sounds crazy enough where it might work. So he was an experienced guy. And he said, I will give you guys, uh, I'll do what I can to clear the way in the organization as much as possible for you to try this. Mm-hmm. And we tried it and it worked. And that was kind of my entree into it in C++. And I got pulled into the C side of it a few years later when a friend of mine said, well, come to China and work with me the, with these European companies in China mm-hmm. and get these people doing TDD and C. And then I did that. And uh, uh, that ended up leading to the book. Mm-hmm. So. Fascinating. But, uh, yeah, it's all all oh, an accident. Yeah. Yeah. I talked to, I was asking Ron and I said, you know, we had to go to the embedded systems conference with this Ron Jeffries. Yeah. I remember him saying, don't, don't the embedded systems, people think they're electrical engineers. They don't really align themselves with software. It's like, yeah, that's kind of right. But so I started uh, going and talking about this stuff at embedded systems conferences and they were pretty much, you know, evil. Yeah. James Grenning, you can't do that. You can't work that way. Yeah. And, uh, you know, slowly people started to think, hmm, maybe it would help. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and they, they started to see it differently, you know, so. Yeah. You have to go back also. It's like this was a while ago, right? So, like, obviously change and this was very uh, new stuff at that point, like talking about these topics. I mean, but it also shows the point that you can learn at conferences, right? Conferences are important to yeah. uh, to attend and to share and, uh, and connect. The, and yeah. I got to tell you, the sales cycle was really long. Yeah. I'd go talk at a conference and it would be three years later. And then I got a call from somebody who's like, you know, that stuff you're talking about, do you still do that? And it's like, yes. <laughs> come <laughs> on. Come and show us. <laughs> exactly. Come back. <laughs> you were like, oh, wow. I hardly remember your name. You know, that's yeah. been a long well, time. One of the guys I, I saw at the conferences a few times and, you know, was like one of my, when I went independent from uh, Object Mentor in 2008, um, his company invited me to Finland to help them learn. It's like, okay. I'll do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so fantastic. Yeah. Um, James, you're not only like, although we have been talking about, you know, embedded software development for a little bit, we touched on the topic and I, I just hope that listeners are getting a, a feeling of the complexities of that. It's just like unbelievable. We could probably go on for a while. Uh, but I also want to make sure that listeners know that you're not only uh, known for the work uh, on embedded so- software development. It's, it's the whole uh, you focus on on software engineering practices, like in general, test driven development, test first uh, design, refactoring, um, um, etc. So, uh, and you're also behind the original planning poker. Oh uh, yes. So that's what I wanted to touch on too. Is like if there's so many, I, I don't know how many people are doing planning poker on a <laughs> on a biweekly basis or or more often, right? Um, so uh, here's the originator. And how yeah. did, did how did you come up with this technique? Well, I happened to be in Salt Lake City with a client, and um, it was post Agile Manifesto, I believe. But we were out there as an object mentor group, Bob Martin's company. We were coaching a company and uh, because my career had taken me not just through engineering, but also into management, I often Mm -hmm. ended up coaching their managers and uh, facilitating planning meetings, you know, but I had never really done it before, of course. Um, And so we're in this planning meeting and there's the engineers trying to come up with their estimates. And uh, I was responsible for them getting through it and coaching them through the process. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, I noticed that in the beginning of the hour, the two senior people would talk and they would come up with a number and then they would justify it for an hour with different approaches. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the hour, 
nothing had changed, except we understood it better. And that was really valuable conversations to have. Right. We were trying to just go through a planning thing and take a stack of cards and estimate them. And I realized we're going to be there for three days. And that's really not what you know we were trying to do. We were trying to just pick the next two weeks for the work. And we can't spend three days planning for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I had ever, and all the rest of the group, the other eight people were just kind of napping. They were not engaged because the two guys yeah. were dominating. You know, they were the yeah. dominate, dominating fig- figures. And uh, something we learned at the big company was uh, Teradyne back in the early 90s was uh, part of TQM, which was brainstorming techniques. Mm-hmm. And one of the brainstorming techniques was to silently brainstorm, right? Everybody get their ideas out all at once. So for some reason that day, it came to me, it's like, let's have everybody grab a note card because as, as, test, as uh, extreme programming aficionados, we always had note cards. So I dealt out note cards to everybody and just said, listen to the story, write down your number, and then we're going to all reveal it once. Mm-hmm. And if we agree, we're going to move on. We, you know, you want to do it one way, you want to do it another way. We don't care. We just want to get an idea. Right. <clears throat> if they differ, then we'll talk about it. We were making this up at the time. Okay. I was making it up, you know, to solve a problem. The meeting was going to take too long. Um, and so we got through the, the thing pretty quickly then with probably as good of information as we had before. And then I went and wrote the paper and put it on the Object Mentor website. The next time I went back to the client, the manager, who was totally against Agile, said, come here, James. We went off into a room. He goes, I got to talk to you. He closed the door. He goes, you guys are making all this stuff up. I read your paper. <laughs> it's like he's oh. mad at me. It's like, well, well, yeah, we're making it up, but solving your problem. Yeah. Right? So it's kind of interesting. But that's how it, that's how it started. That's how it started. About a year later, I told people to stop doing it. Because uh, one of my another one of my colleagues that grew up at the same uh, company, Teradyne, uh, mm-hmm. Lowell Lindstrom, he said, you know, there's another technique we use kind of like planning poker, which was affinity grouping. Let's go try that. And so we started doing that in some of our classes to to get the feel of it, which would be mm-hmm. um, basically stacking, you know, organizing the stories, easy ones on one side, hard ones on the next side, and then yeah. spreading them in between and putting numbers on at the end. Right. And uh, it was super, it was fast. You could do hundreds of stories in an hour. So I would, if people want to do estimates, I would steer them that way. And I would also tell them if it isn't a one or a two, you can't, you don't know it well enough to work on it. Okay. Don't pick a, don't pick a five. Don't pick an eight. Don't pick a 10. Don't pick a 50. (laughs) You don't know enough. Yeah. Don't pick an infinity. (laughs) Yeah. Don't, don't pick those. Uh, If they're the most important things, you got to peel some learning out of them. Yeah. Got appeal like we did with the um, water pressure uh, system. We uh, looked for little stories that demonstrate that we understood how to build the system. Right. You know, demonstrable progress. I always tell folks that are doing uh, playing poker uh, that this is a facilitation technique rather than estimation, right? The disagreement brings out another conversation. Yeah. Uh, that facilitates that conversation. So yeah. it's a quick way for facilitating the number. Yeah. At the end, it's like it's it's not a contract, right? Yeah. Um, and the funny the funny thing about that, because that's the most cited um, benefit to to uh, planning poker I've heard. And my motivation was to get people to shut up, yeah. <laughs> because these two guys wouldn't stop talking yeah. and get the other people involved, right? Yeah. Now, as it turned out, we talked when we needed to, when we agreed. This is one of these techniques to find where you agree. 
something yeah. that would be really important to use in our world today, right? What do we agree on? Okay, we can make progress on what we agree on. If we don't agree, um, we can either put it aside for a while, or we can find out what our differences are and see if we can get closer or put it aside for a while, mm -hmm. right? And so, um, you know, it was one of these amazing techniques it came from, you know, Deming originally, I'm sure, and then went to Japan and, you know, right. got validated there and came back here. Came back here. You know, so, right. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. James, this is fascinating to talk about. And uh, obviously we talked a little bit about the past. We talked a bit, um, you know, what's what's currently in the near past, what's going on, right? Um, I want to take a little bit of a look into the future uh, with you um, because you have worked on so many cool things and you were part of so many cool things um, that whatever you're working on next uh, must be a cool thing. And uh, <laughs> so we chatted a little bit about that you're currently developing some form of, um, or you're utilizing your own training platform. And it sounds super interesting. And I would like uh, listeners to hear about that. And uh, sure. maybe, yeah, maybe you can share some thoughts of, you know, where yep. you are with this product and where this is going. Yep. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I'll just go back a little bit because uh, I wanted to travel less. And so I started doing remote training about eight years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it turned out that that worked nicely to be able to involve people that were, you know, smaller groups and not maybe the early adopters in a company, or whatever, there was a way to get to them. And it was a disaster when I started, but the people that took it said, oh, great, I learned something would have been better if you're with me. And I started evolving my system to support that mm -hmm. remote delivery. And it's evolved quite a bit. Um, now, I'm no web developer, but through the School of Hard Knocks, um, I've developed a system to help me deliver my remote training. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you can tell I've been around a while, so I'm, I'm trying to find ways to work less, but I feel like I still have a mission to help people learn this test-driven thing, mm -hmm. uh, especially the millions of embedded systems engineers that there are. So I've, I've started to create uh, learning content and I looked at some of the platforms that were available. I looked high and low and mm -hmm. I spent several months looking for a platform that was going to work for me which meant, well, so for instance, one of the platforms, um, Teachable is great for somebody that isn't an engineer, I suppose, but it wasn't great for me because if I had a video I wanted to post there and also feature it on my website and also use it in my live training, um, I've got to manage that thing three times and that's just not sustainable for me. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know my weaknesses and that, that would be one of them. I, it, it's boring work and I wouldn't do it. Yeah. So what I needed is a way to have my course in uh, a repository and a way that I could configure it for if somebody wants to take it all on their own. And I've mm -hmm. got a, maybe 20 people going through it all on their own right now. Mm -hmm. They're the early, the first people going through it. Or if I'm doing a, a live remote course, people can, I can get more done with the time we have together. And if you're going across a lot of time zones, really mm -hmm. four hours is about the most time you can manage a meeting. Mm -hmm. So there's stuff for people to do before and stuff for people to do after each meeting that gives them a, yeah. a good experience in mm -hmm. learning. So we, they watch some of the lectures on video, but we get together to do exercises where I can give them feedback and answer questions. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've been building this platform and uh, it's, uh, I think it's working nicely. I've learned a lot about web development. Luckily my son is an awesome uh, developer that happens to have web skills and could help me with some of it. And uh, so that's my, that's my system. I'm hoping to uh, 
get people to hear about it. Yeah. Um, it's kind of hard to get the word out. Um, well, but, uh, we can help, right? It's uh, people can get in touch with you at wingman dash sw.com. That is that's wingman dash sw.com, right? Yeah. Uh, it's how people can get in touch with you and uh, possibly even sign up for a training right there and experiencing sure. it if they're interested, but also to uh, experience the, the platform. Is that, does that include like even like uh, uh, different versions of video, sizes of video? Because all of these platforms have probably different kind of requirements, right? In terms of uh, high definition or not. Yeah, or... sure. Um, well, you'll see that I've learned a lot in the process. Yeah. So, uh, um, I've, I've kind of gone to a shorter style of video. I think I record them in uh, 1080p, mm -hmm. but because it's it's served through Vimeo, mm -hmm. um, you get to adjust it at your site to whatever you need. Great. Um, yeah. And uh, I've had a lot of fun with it. Um, I, I made a green room. I've kind of discovered how I can have fun doing it and have it hopefully not be too boring for people. Uh, there's two example videos on the front page of wingman-sw.com, which I have a little bit of fun with. My wife is in uh, one of the frames. I, I try to draw upon, uh, well, a lot of stuff. So, yeah. Um, and try to use uh, visual metaphors for people to help them learn. So, That's wonderful. Yeah. And I also like the, uh, the, the training approach, right? Especially for, you know, I would assume software engineers, you know, how long can you focus on something? Probably not eight hours, but if you're learning on your own pace. And then you come together for, you know, exercises. What a great yeah. model it is, right? I think that's more engaging. Yeah, and the, the videos I've, are typically no longer than 20 minutes. Sometimes a demo will last longer. Mm -hmm. um, but I've been trying to cut them down to smaller bite-sized pieces I, as I've been learning, you know, what is effective. And yeah. uh, for people to be able to find their way through it a second time, because it's kind of hard to find your way through it. It's subtitles, because one of my clients said... Um, you know, it's hard to really hear every word you're saying. It's like, mm -hmm. okay, so it's like, how can I do subtitles? And it turns out there's an integration with Vimeo. You can get subtitles added with no problem. Yeah. And I could actually probably convert it to another language yeah. um, without huge expense. Mm -hmm. um, so it's been an interesting learning curve. And, yeah. uh, but then the other thing is it integrates with an exercise environment. So people can actually do programming um, in my environment where they don't have to go through the hoops of setting up environments and things for, oh, wow. they can just go do the exercise and learn the thing that I'm trying to help them learn like the same and it, to experience it. Right. You can't learn without experiencing. And uh, so I wanted to make that easy. So I've, I've got this uh, cyber dojo based mm -hmm. um, delivery system, which, you know, so I'm managing several servers now, <laughs> <laughs> which of course is way outside my, area of expertise but uh as an engineer i have fun doing those things yeah. so it sounds like it it sounds like you're really you know surrounding yourself with very interesting uh projects and, and products uh, you're developing james i want to thank you for spending some time with me uh with the listeners out there so that they get an impression of who you are how they can get in touch with you that they uh, see embedded software development uh, could be done in an agile uh, way uh, you have written books uh, and, um, you know, every time they are holding up their cards for planning poker, yeah, you know, <laughs> it's James, James Granning, right? And, uh, and they do that a lot. And most importantly, they can get in touch with you for your um, training um, software. Is there a name you want to share? Is there a name for your framework, for your tool? Oh, I don't really have a name for it. It uh, would be the Wingman Software. Well, I call it my training center. 
Okay. Um, I also use another system called GatherTown if it's live training, yeah. which is, uh, I don't know if you've seen that or not, but uh, if you do any training or if any of your listeners do training, GatherTown is pretty awesome for uh, getting collaboration to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zoom, you've got breakout rooms, but somebody has to manage that. In a GatherTown, mm-hmm. uh, you've got a little icon, you just walk into the room that you're supposed to be in. Yeah. And it's kind of it kind of turns into a virtual world. It's really very impressive. It changed my life. I get there's several things that have changed my uh, yeah. delivery mechanisms over the years. That's another one of them. But uh, yeah, so yeah. well, I appreciate you having me on and letting me spout yeah. about uh, <laughs> the stuff I'm doing. It's always kind of fun. Right. Advice for the experts. Thank you so much, James. And um, I'll put all the links up on the show page um, so that people can get in touch with you. Um, Thank you and, uh, you know, enjoy the rest of the day. Okay, you too. Thank you for listening to Agile FM, the radio for the Agile community. I'm your host, Joe Krebs. If you're interested in more programming and additional podcasts, please go to www.agile.fm. Talk to you soon.